Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Matthew chapter 18, if you have your Bibles or if you, you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, the Bible that, that is on the, you know, kind of the rack in front of you, that's your Bible. Take it home with you, please. We want you. We won't think you're stealing. We want you to have it, okay? Matthew chapter 18. Well, listen, if you went to high school in the United States, I don't know today, but I know at least up until a couple of decades ago. Anyway, um, if, if, if you went into English class, you uh, read Charles Dickens' memorable novel, Great Expectations. Did you read Great Expectations, a lot of people? Okay, some of the older people did. I don't know about the newer people. I don't know if they're reading even... Re- I don't know if they know who Dickens is today, to be honest with you. Anyway, Nancy DeMoss, in one of her books, retells the story of one of the main characters in that Dickens novel, Miss Haversham. Now, Miss Haversham is an eccentric old lady, and by the time the reader actually meets this very unusual person uh, in the story, it's, it's her birthday. So we meet her, it's her birthday. Years earlier, on her birthday, on the very day that we're introduced to her, on the calendar day, she had been dressing for her wedding, waiting for her fiancé to arrive. But at exactly 20 minutes to 9, she received the numbing word that her groom had run away with another woman. He wasn't going to be coming that day or ever. From that moment on, life stopped for Miss Haversham. Every clock in her house was stopped precisely at the fateful hour of 20 minutes till 9. Heavy drapes were hung in the windows, blocking all sunlight, you know, and she, she was left with this very dim, very dingy home 24-7. She lived in seclusion with her adopted daughter, Estella, and the wedding cake and the food for the feast that had been prepared for that wedding from that day on laid rotting on the table and spiders, crumb by crumb, and mice carried them away into the walls, into the recesses. Most vivid of all, the jilted bride-to-be continued to wear the now fragile dress and the wedding veil that she had been wearing at the moment that her tragedy became known, along with the faded you know, veil and the lace, and it was just by the time we meet her, it's all in tatters. Now, to the main character, Pip, uh, who, was a, who arrives at the house because he's attracted to Estella, he's kind of courting her, and the first time he goes in there, and you know, he's saying, what in the world is going on here? And uh, so one day, Miss Haversham gives this depressing analysis. She says, on this day of the year, long before you were born, this heap of decay was brought here. It and I have worn away together. The mice have gnawed at it, and sharper teeth than the teeth of mice have gnawed at me. Nancy DeMoss, after giving that illustration, said this. She said, those teeth were and are the sharp edges of bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. 
tearing deeper than the flesh wounds of claw and fang, these knife-like protrusions can pierce far beneath the skin, eating away at joy, eroding peace, and closing our hearts off to the sunlight of God's presence. It can, in fact, it does happen to almost everyone. Someone comes along, someone sins against us, and we watch our peace be carried away like crumbs from a molding, crumbling wedding cake. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. What or who has eroded our peace? What or who has eroded your peace? Uh, Was it an unfaithful spouse, a neglectful, unresponsive parent, memories of sexual abuse, uh, abusive, cruel children, overbearing bosses who tossed you away, a death, a health blow, insensitive in-laws, a business partner that stole from you, a teacher that made sport of you in front of everybody many, many years ago, or fiancés that just never showed up. Now, when stuff like this happens, uh, at first we're, we're, we're kind of devastated. If, if, it's, if, it's, if it's important, if it's not important, get over it. But when it is important, this is how it usually goes. We're very hurt, and then after the hurt kind of wears off a little bit, take a different amount of time with all different people, all of a sudden we start to become angry. And the anger starts to kind of simmer and sit, and we become bitter. And it begins, as the moss said, to tear at us like fangs from a ravenous wolf pack. Now, you say, well, how do you know if, if, if hurt has turned into bitterness in my life? Well, here's a couple of questions that you need to ask yourself. Number one, do I often replay in my mind the incident or incidences that have hurt me? When I think of a particular person or situation, do I still feel angry? doesn't matter how long it's been. Do I still feel angry? Do I try hard not to think about a person, an event, or a circumstance that's caused me so much pain? If it's a person who caused the pain, do I have a subtle secret desire to see this person pay for what he or she has done to me? Deep in my heart, would I have to admit that I wouldn't mind if something bad happened to that person who hurt me? Do I find myself telling others how this person has hurt me? Do many of my conversations res- revolve around the situation? When his or her name comes up, am I more likely to say something negative than positive about him or her? See, these are the kind of thoughts that reveal bitterness in our hearts. Bitterness, folks, it causes our stomachs to churn all day and our brains to storm all night and our souls very slowly to turn to black hatred as we kind of plot real or imaginary, you know, revenge, vengeance. It is, I believe, the real cause of the marriage split, the divided family, the broken business partnership, the divided church. You have just found it impossible, impossible to forgive or to even think about forgiving. The writer of Hebrews understands the human heart. And he wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, anger is is the root in the metaphor that 
the writer of Hebrews is using. What is a root? Well, the, the, the root is kind of under the tree. It, it's the part that's hidden. It's the part that goes deepest, the anger. Now, a lot of times we could admit to one another, you know, and maybe over a cup of coffee or Panera or something like that, or maybe in your life group you've done this, you admit to anxiety or worry or lust or depression. But many times we cannot or do not admit to anger because a lot of times, listen, it's hidden. It, it's, it's deep in the recesses of our hearts and in our souls. A lot of times, and I, I, I truly believe this, a lot of times we don't even, we don't even realize that it's there it, to the effect that it's there. It, we've, we've buried it for so long, and we have done this so often, that a lot of times when people say, hey, remember that situation about this? Uh, you mad about that? No, no, I'm not mad about that. But then all of a sudden you start feeling it, right? And it was quite, you know the questions we asked just a minute ago? You start saying, you know what? Yeah, I do think about this. Yeah, that, I, I, you know, I would love it if this guy, something happened to this guy. I, I, I would never say that because, you, you know, we'd never do that, but, but, I would, but it'd be really true. And what happens when, when, when listen, I've always said that, that emotions are, when we bury our emotions, they're always buried alive. Always buried alive. And sooner or later, in one form or another, they're going to come up again and they're going to rear their ugly head. A lot of times it brings other, people's da- other people down with us. As the writer of Hebrews says, to cause trouble and defile you. You'd think he said it would cause you, cause you pro- your anger is going to cause you problems and defile you. You know what he says? He says it's going to defile many. See, because when you are angry, when you are bitter, when you start acting out, even when it's in the subterranean caves and there's a tension, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, there's a tension in your life. You know, you know who's also taking the brunt of that? Everybody around you. Everybody around you. Now, we try to minimize it. But sooner or later, our anger twists us. It makes us cynical. It makes us hard. It's like, somebody wrote this. It's like having a continual, low-grade spiritual fever that goes on and on and on and on. Now, we have been in a series on the Apostles' Creed. This morning, uh, we come to the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, you say, wait a minute. Uh, that has to do with God forgiving my sins. Isn't that you know what we're talking about? Not me forgiving the sins of others. Folks, if you don't forgive, it is a very, very good indication that you haven't been forgiven. Very good indication. There is not a better way to get a clear look at the spiritual picture of an individual's heart or a better sign of where you're going in your eternal destiny than whether or not you forgive. That's why it's crucial. That's why it's in the Apostles' Creed. Now, we're going to be looking at this passage that Doug read for us uh, very briefly this morning, and we're going to be answering uh, or asking a couple of questions, hopefully get an answer to it. The questions are this, real easy. Why should I forgive? How do I forgive? Why should I forgive? How do I forgive? Okay, now let me say this. If you decided that, indeed, you will not live in a cave for the rest of your life, you know, you're going to go into, some of you think, I'm going to go into a cave today, and I don't want to deal with people anymore. I get it sometimes. I really do. But if you're actually going to be in society, be prepared to be sinned against. Be prepared to get hurt. Be prepared for someone, probably this week, probably this afternoon, okay? Let me, you know, very possibly this afternoon, okay? To say something that kind of, kind of hurts you. It kind of does something to you. It gets those questions that we asked before, you know, kind of percolating in your mind. And, and, and by the way, uh, if you're part of the human race, you're going to sin against others, too. We're going to sin against others, too. Um, so I guess it would be helpful to have a working definition of what forgiveness is, you know. What, what, what is 
what is forgiveness and what is it called for? Well, so, you know, if you, you start reading around, a lot of people have different definitions of what forgiveness is. So, some, some people say that forgiveness is surrendering your right to get even. Surrendering your right to get even. When someone sins against you, listen, they owe you. They've stolen or they've, they've attacked you and they've, they've, they've kind of, your self-esteem, your reputation, your money, your time, your trust, it's taken a hit. They've done something to you. They've, they've stolen something from you. And, and uh, they, basically, they owe you. And a lot of times, uh, you know, we decide to get even. But if you, if you forgive, as some people say, uh, it's, you're kind of giving up your right to get even. And, and you know what? That's not bad. I, I, that's a good thing. But you know what? I, I don't think it goes far enough. I think it's good to say when we forgive, we decide not to get even, but it doesn't go far enough. Some have said that forgiveness involves going back to the way things were. You know, let bygones be bygones. You know, when you were a kid and there was a fight, uh, you know, guys, remember this? A lot of times there's a fight in the playground and, and uh, the gym teacher comes out and says, Yeah, you cut it out. And he grabs you by, you know, and he goes, Now shake like that. Obviously, everything's back to normal now because we shook hands and made no, there's no hard feelings. That's ridiculous. But that's exactly what they wanted you to do. It's like, all right, forget about it. It's over. And now you guys are best friends again. That, you know, that doesn't happen. But, you know, it's, it's what some people think has to happen, you know, if there's forgiveness. Now, i got to tell you something. Just as that the other one doesn't go far enough by saying, you know, I'm not going to seek, uh, you know, uh, try to get even or seek revenge. This goes too far. When you say something like that, it goes way too far. When you're talking about going back to the way things work, you're talking about another subject. You're talking about reconciliation. We're not talking about that this morning. We're not even touching that this morning, okay? So I think it really comes down to this. When we have been sinned against, when we have been wounded, you basically react in one of two ways, and I do too. Number one, we become debt collectors. We choose the path of bitterness. We choose the path of resentment. We set out to make the offender pay for what he or she owes us. And, by the way, we decide the appropriate penalty. Maybe the appropriate penalty is the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. Maybe the uh, appropriate penalty is, you know, uh, fill in the blank, how many uh, different things we do. You know, gossip and, 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 and tearing down reputations. We decide what's appropriate, and we also decide when it's been paid. When enough time has gone by and they've been hurt enough and you see, you know, you screwed up their career or whatever, it's like, oh, okay, you know what, it's over. You know, that's, that's what it's, you know, we could do that. We can become debt collectors or, or we could choose to become debt absorbers, which basically is one who decides to absorb the debt. Something's been done and you decide, you know what, I'm going to pay for it. I, it's been done to me, but I'm going to pay for it. Now, if you decide to become a debt absorber, you pay the price, and you refuse to exact the price out of the person in any way. You free them, in a sense, from the penalty of the sin that they have committed against you. And you do that by paying the price yourself. Because, folks, listen, there's always pain involved. When a debt is paid, when you're going to pay back a $500, you know, loan to somebody, and you are sure you're going to have the money next week, but you know what? The money's not there. And now it's like every time... Oh, gosh. And you've got to figure out, you're going to have to work extra hours. You're going to have to work a couple of nights. You're going to have to do, there's always, there's inconvenient, there's pain involved, okay, when a debt is paid. Always, always, always. Which reminds me of somebody else in Scripture who paid, who went through a lot of pain for us and paid our debt. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, it says this, talking about forgiveness, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just 
as in Christ, God forgave you. Considerable pain. Considerable pain. Considerable incurring of pain to pay off our debt. We just sang about it. So, so, so what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is when you choose to refuse to make another person pay for their sin against you, but instead choose to absorb the debt yourself, to bear the cost yourself. Forgiveness is choosing not to be a debt collector, but a debt absorber. So here's the question. Why should I be a debt absorber? Why should I forgive someone who has sinned against me? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, because it indicates something. It indicates that I've been forgiven, that something has happened to me. Now, if you read the story that Doug just read for us uh, again, and I don't know if you're paying attention. Some people pay attention to their scriptures, some don't. Some, you know, you know I, I get it, I get it. But read it later in Matthew 18. If you have it in front of you, you could, you could glance at it right now. And it begins by uh, a king who's, who kind of got wind of irregularities in the accounting department. Now, you know, when, when you hear about irregularities in the accounting department, people, your own businesses, you're like, uh-oh, you know what, lock the doors, get all the, ca- get all the tapes from the cameras, let's, you know, let's bring, you know, you start getting nervous right away, irregularities in that department. And, and some, somehow, you know, the royal accountants came to the king, and, and, and the king was absolutely shocked to find out that this guy had stolen an unbelievable amount of money. Uh, the, in the story, it's immaterial how he stole that money. But he, he ended up owing money that was just, you know, an, an exorbitant amount. Jesus used it. He, he used an amount of money that everybody would go, that's, that's ridiculous. Okay, but go ahead. I, I know you're trying to make a point. And he, and he says, uh, look, there's a couple of things in the story that we do know. Number one, we know how much he owed, this exorbitant amount. In fact, it says 10,000 talents uh, of gold or 10,000 bags of gold. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. 10,000 talents of gold or 10,000 bags of gold represented, somebody who had much too much time on their hand, uh, calculated that it represents more than the entire annual income of the king. One said that it was more than the actual coinage in circulation in Egypt at that time. I had a few extra minutes this week, so I calculated, did some calculate calculations too, and I figured that it would have taken this guy making a normal wage of a normal, you know, one denarii a day, that was a normal wage, guy who's, you know, working class, blue-collar guy, it would have taken him 2,857 lifetimes to pay it back. Lifetimes! 2,857 lifetimes. Now, we know how much is owed, but there's something else in the story that we do know. We also know the penalty in that day for one who could not or did not or would not pay back their debts. It was very common practice when uh, a man or his family could not come up with the cash to pay his debts that the man, his wife, and even, I know it sounds unbelievable, even his children could be sold into slavery. Now, the average price for a slave back then was about 500 to 2,000 days, days of wages. So, if the guy, you know, the king took the guy and he, he sold him as a slave, he's going to make back, a, 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 you know, not even a penny on, on the dollar. Much, much, much less than a penny on the dollar. It's almost not even worth it if he took him and he sold him as a slave. Now, what I find interesting in the story is the guy's reaction. In verse, chapter, in verse 26 of chapter 18 of Matthew, 
It says this. Now, he's brought before the guy, and he's, you know, he's red-handed. He's got it. The witnesses are lined up, right? And he says this in verse 26. The servant fell on his knees before him, before the king, and he said this. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. I'll pay back everything, which is a joke. I mean, it's not a joke, but it's, it's a joke. And everybody in the courtroom, you could hear, you know, do you ever watch these court uh, proceedings, you know, on television, and every now and then you got people starting to laugh. Somebody says something, they go, <laughs> everybody would have been doing that, okay, when this guy said, give me a little time. Now, the guy's not a dummy. If the guy could steal this much money, he's, he, 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 he's not stupid. The guy, the guy can, he, he knows how to finagle numbers. He knows how to do things. He's got people in high places. He knows people, whatever, whatever. The guy, you know, didn't fall off the turnip truck so to speak, you know, yesterday. He understands this kind of, and he's probably thinking in his, in his mind, oh, gee, you know, I, I got this money. Maybe if I, have, if I have a year, if he gives me a year, which means he's not only, you know, ridiculous, he's, he's arrogant to even think that, that he could pay it back. But be that as it may, he, he's begging. And basically what he's trying to do, he's stalling for time. He's thinking maybe if I could, you know, a little bit of time. And he, and, and he figures uh, if, he, if he could just have a little more time, he could work his way out of this mess. And you know what? I got to tell you, he didn't get it. He didn't get the real problem. See, the real problem was that the king had put his trust in this guy. He was probably, because he had stolen so much, someone who was privy to, you know, knowledge that only the closest to the king would understand. He had not just stolen from the king. He had broken the king's heart. And you know what? Uh, That's a much worse thing. His careless actions, his selfish actions. He had broken trust, but he had also broken his heart. And folks, i got to tell you something. Flowers or a stumbling apology or a promise of better behavior in the future, that's not what's needed here. Folks, I have never seen flowers heal a broken heart. Never. And yet, there was something in this servant's plea that moved the heart of the king that he had wounded. And his reaction was something that I'm sure that servant and everybody in the courtroom thought was incredibly unexpected. See, the guy asked for time, but he got what he really needed. You know what he really needed? Forgiveness. That's what he needed. The Apostle Peter wrote this. He said, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers... But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You know, a lot of times we think our sins are trivial. We, we, we do. We, we kind of do it, and it's like, well, okay, I did it again. It's, it's just, you know, that's the way I am. That's the way we are. We're fallen nature. That's the way people are. Um, but, folks, i got to tell you something. When we look at our sins as small, we will look at forgiveness as cheap. And I have to tell you something right now. Our forgiveness was not cheap. It was not. What we need to do is to take a step back and regularly see the results of our sins against God and our sins against one another. And when we look at the cross, 
when we look at the cross, we will see God's verdict on sin and the terrible price that was paid. Folks, again, I've said it before. We've even said it in this series. We wear crosses as jewelry, and I get it, and they're pretty, and, you know, I think my girls have crosses, and it's just, you know, it's the cross is God's final verdict about sin. It is an instrument of execution. It is an instrument of torture. The cross is not first and foremost the message, the love of God. First and foremost, it is God judges and hates sin. That's what the cross is all about. It is a bloody, disgusting, unbelievable mess at the cross. See, that's God's verdict on sin. And when we trivialize sin, we trivialize what he did. And we, we show that we really don't understand the cost of forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from long ago, said this. He said, we go to Calvary to learn how we may be forgiven, but we linger there to learn how to forgive. When Christ forgave us, the Bible says he assumed all of our guilt. He took upon himself the awful result of every single sin that we have ever committed or will ever commit in our entire lives of the whole world. He determined to pay the price that my sins incurred. He died to make things right between me and my creator. That is an enormous gift. And when we forgive, when we assume the pain, when we assume the embarrassment, the consequences of another's indiscretion, folks, i got to tell you something. We're very much like Jesus. We are very much like Jesus. Forgiveness is the gracious act of pardon on the part of one who has been scorned to one who has sinned against them. Do you know what it says in verse 27? It says, The servant's master took pity on him, canceled his debt, and let him go. You know, the hymn writer, I remember the hymn growing up when I was a kid. Calvary covers it all. My past with its sin and stain, my guilt and despair, Jesus took on him there. For Calvary covers it all. And he was free. He was free. Now let me ask you something. Logically speaking, okay? What should be the, re- the reaction? What should be the response of someone who's experienced a forgiveness like that. What do you think? Do you, do you think it should change his or her heart, someone who, who really understands that, someone who's really kind of embraced that? And do you think it would change the way that they deal with other people? You would, you would think it would. You would hope it would. If, if, if someone truly understands how much they've been forgiven, it's impossible to remain the person that you were. And if you, are the, if you remain the person that you were, you didn't get it. You simply didn't get it. But this servant that Jesus tells us about seems to have not get it. For we read in the passage that the servant, still basking in the sunshine of the mercy and the grace of the king, I mean, this guy, 
he would have been in jail for the rest of his life and, and no, no hope of ever seeing the light of day. And he's let, he's scot-free, he gets out, he's been forgiven, he goes out and he meets a guy who owes him basically what amounts to two months' wages. That's not an insignificant amount, but you can pay it back. You can do, we've all done it. And he starts choking the guy. And, he, and it, the, the irony of the whole story, and Jesus knew this, was that he uses the exact same language. The exact same verbiage is used. He uses on, on this guy that was used on him. Pay me back. You know, you're going to pay back every time. And he owed so little. This guy owed so little compared to what he owed. He really didn't understand the grace extended to him. Therefore, he couldn't extend it to someone else because he had never really entered into it. The first and best reason why we should forgive is because we have been forgiven so much. And when we do it, it indicates that we have been forgiven. And if, if we callously, arrogantly decide, you know, in our hearts to withhold even the thought of forgiveness, it shows that we really don't understand how much we've been forgiven from. Perhaps, perhaps we've never understood it. Never. A forgiven person is a forgiving person. Second, why should I forgive? Well, because it keeps me from the tormentors. It keeps me from torment. Uh, Frederick uh, Beekner said this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievance long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you are giving back to them in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. When the king found out what had happened and how unmercifully the servant had, the one who had been forgiven, had acted towards this other guy because the word got back to him right away, he in fury in an outrage, said in verse 32, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And since, look, and since the debt could never be paid back in prison, right? How are you going to pay back the debt in prison? By what, making license plates? For five cents a license plate? Okay. The punishment was going to go on forever and ever and ever. Now, the fact of the matter is, when we don't or won't forgive, we set ourselves up to be handed over to the torturers, okay, or the tormentors in jail, in a jail of our own making, basically is what it is, just like Miss Haversham in Dickens' novel. Now, look, I know that in a very real sense, Jesus was talking about the eternal torture, eternal torture in the passage. I, I, I think that is part of what he's talking about. And, and being turned out to a place that we have always wanted all our lives, a place where God's not bothering us, a place where God, you know, God's voice doesn't come to us, a place where we can, you know, we could do exactly what we want to do when we want to do it, and he will no longer bother you, a place where you'll forever experience the eternal wrath and judgment of God. See, that's what hell is. But... But, in a secondary sense, when we refuse to forgive, we turn ourselves over, I believe, to temporary jailers who make life on planet Earth absolutely miserable. 
Now, in some ways, it's obvious how that happens. In other ways, it's not. But sooner or later, we, all, we have to deal with it. Do you for one minute, listen, do you for one minute think that there is no relationship, there's no relationship at all uh, between the tortures of mental, emotional, and physical disorders and the fact that we're stuck in the muck and the mire and the bitterness of unforgiveness? Do you think there's no relations at all? Well, i got to tell you who would beg to differ. Psychologists today. Even secular psychologists are beginning to write about the relationship of anger and resentment and psychological disorders and problems. High blood pressure, heart disease, hormonal changes, impaired immune systems, memory loss, even back pain are increasingly being linked to unresolved bitterness and anger. You know what? When you want to do something this afternoon, go Google anger and sickness. Anger and sickness. That phrase, when you get home... And see how many articles come up. Hundreds of articles will come up. We have handed ourselves over to the torturers. I'm not saying that all sickness is due to anger. I don't believe that. There's no organic roots to it. I don't believe that at all. But I think that you are foolish to think that there's no linkage between the two, that there's no linkage at all. Though her fiancé married someone else, in Dickens' novel, Miss Haversham lived a wasted life of pain and of torture. Jesus linked a refusal to forgive with God turning us over to the tormentors. But i got to say this. When you refuse to make another person pay for their sin against you, and, if, and instead absorb the debt, take it on yourself, you have begun to understand what forgiveness is all about. Is it painful? Unbelievably painful. But you, for the first time in your life, have begun to understand what it's all about. Forgiveness is refusing to be a debt collector, but instead choosing to be a debt absorber, someone who bears the, co the cost, him or herself. When we absorb the pain of those who have sinned against us, folks, i got to tell you, it is at that time that we are most like the Savior, and we keep ourselves from the tormentors now and forever. Well, let me, uh, let me land this plane. How do I forgive? How do I forgive? Well, there's a couple of things you need to know in preparation for forgiveness. Before we talk about just three things, uh, really briefly, um, so, a couple of things you know in preparation. Uh, you may feel you need to forgive and really there are times when forgiveness is not called on at all. It's, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not that type of situation. If you're in a position where forgiveness is called for, though, you need to identify two things. And I think people a lot of times mess up in, in this. Number one, you need to identify what was done to you. You need to identify the charges. What, what are the charges? What was the crime? What was the sin committed against you? True forgiveness is not, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad. Well, then shut up. If it really, honestly, if it wasn't that bad, then stop bothering everybody, okay? You're making everybody crazy, okay? Uh, uh, but if it really has hurt you, if it's really gone deep, okay, what was it that went so deep? You can only forgive something that has been done, okay? When someone has sinned against you, what, you know, what is it? If you can't identify a sin, then it's all theory. It's absolutely all theory. It's knowing something happened and knowing what that something is. You need to articulate what happened. My father abused me. My wife had an affair that destroyed the family. 
My boss threw me under the bus to look good in front of his supervisors. See, by articulating the charge, you identify the nature of your loss. And you, you did have loss. There's no question about it. And by saying you didn't have loss doesn't make it not true. All of our hurts come from loss, whether already experienced or even anticipated. Maybe it's a loss of love. Maybe it's a loss of self-esteem. Maybe it's a loss of control. Maybe it's a loss of influence. Whenever someone sins against us and hurts us, we lose something. You need to identify the loss and ask yourself this question. What was done and what loss have I incurred because of it? That's the first thing you got to do. And this is in preparation. Okay? Second thing. Who's the blame? you got to put a name to it. you got to put a name to it. Look, if there's no blame, uh, then there's no reason to forgive anyone. You know, who can blame someone and to refuse uh, to forgive her? But, we, you know, uh, it, it, we, you don't know who it is. I mean, if it, there's got, it came somewhere. It came from some source. There is a name behind it. Folks, sometimes the name is God. Sometimes there is a situation. I was thinking about this earlier this morning where there's no person that you could look at, but the situation happened. And you know what? You're a believer. And you believe in the sovereignty of God. And you believe that everything that happens in the life of a Christian, you know what? God, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. You must be kidding. And that's what you've been saying in your mind. See, and folks, I have to tell you something. There's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, nowhere, that it says we need to forgive God. We, we never stand in the seat of judgment against God. Never, ever, ever. So you know what? How, how screwed up that is. We need to come around and we need to apply some good theology that we've been talking about for the last couple of months. And we need to say, there is something going on here that I don't get. And I may never get But I know God, and I know his character, and I know he's good, and I'm going to trust him. See, it may not be. If, 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 if the name for you is God, you need a change of theology. You need to just apply some truth to your life, and things will change. But for the most part, many times, there is a name that we have to name. If there is no charge, if there is no name... Forgiveness is not called for. Well, let's just say that you're going to identify the wound and the wounder. Then what? Well, the key verse in this entire narrative is verse 27. It, uh, it, it tells what, what the king did. These are the steps. Ready? Verse 27 says this. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. How do I forgive? Step one, took pity on him. He took pity on him. Now, the first thing you do uh, uh, is, you know, look, we, don't want, we want to avoid pity. <laughs> the person that's hurt, hurt this, this is the last thing we want to do. Now, it really, and people say, well, pity him, I have to feel sorry for him. Now, that's, that's not what this word is, means at all. See, this is a very full word. It's a very important word in the Bible. It literally means to have your heart go from, your, go from you into someone else. Into someone's situation, into someone's body. You know, what's the, the Indian prayer? Let me walk a, a mile in someone else's moccasin. 
Is that something? I probably just messed that up. But anyway, uh, you, you, know what that, you know what we mean, right? Um, what, what does it mean to have your, your, your heart go out to someone? You know what it means? It means that you identify with them. It means you are putting your heart in them, in their body, in their life, and you feel something of what they feel. You, know, you do what is undeniably the hard work of identifying with them and reminding yourself how much you have in common with them, which is exactly the opposite thing that we want to do when somebody hurts them. We want to show how much better we are than them and how much different we are than them and how, how can anybody even do something like that. I mean, these people are out of their minds, right? Um, now, to, em- em- to empathize and to sympathize with one who's wounded us is not something we ever want to do. It's not something that comes naturally. It's the last thing we want to do. Psychologist Robert, Robert Enright and philosopher Joanna North, in their book, Exploring Forgiveness, you know what they call this, you know, uh, of, of sending your heart out, to, you know, uh, have your heart go out to somebody? They call it, they give it a name, they call it reframing. Reframing. Now, what is that? It's simply to enlarge your understanding of the offender's life. Someone screams at you at work. You're in the office, they scream at you, yell at you in front of everybody, makes you look like a fool, for something that was very, very minor. In your mind, in everybody else's mind, you know, somebody says, I can't believe he screamed at you like that for that. That's ridiculous. And so you go into your office, and you take rubber bands, and you make this voodoo doll out of rubber bands, and then you start sticking <laughs> pins in it for the rest of the afternoon, right? I mean, that's, that's exactly, you close the door, and that's, that's pretty much what you're doing. Then someone comes in at the end of the day, and they say to you, you know, he just found out yesterday that his eight-year-old daughter has Hodgkin's disease. reframing. It's reframing. Now, when you reframe, when you get a bit of the story, when you get a bit more of the narrative, does that mean that this person hasn't sinned? Absolutely not. Shouldn't have yelled at you. Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have embarrassed you in front of everybody else. is Is there still a loss on your part? Absolutely. But you know what? Somehow when we reframe things, you know, we always want to make sense of suffering. We want to say, there's got to be a reason, this, that. So we start searching for that. It's part, if you can reframe things, and you could kind of have your heart go to them and understand them better, it kind of helps in the healing process. Understanding where, you know, the perpetrator has come from, I think a lot of times helps us. You read about Jesus in the Gospels. And, and, and you know, time and time again, his heart, he pitied people. His heart went out to them, to the hungry to the, to, to the thirsty, to the leaderless, to the confused, the people who were sick. It is used of Jesus, if you look in the Gospels, again and again and again and again. See, we have a Savior who understands what we go through. See, he understands your life. All the nuances nobody else gets. Nobody understands the struggles. You know what? There's one person, just one. Who does? Amen? He does. On the cross, Jesus Christ identified with you. His heart went out to you. It's the ultimate example, folks, i got to tell you. He identified with you, he identified with me, and he took the penalty that was ours upon himself. He identified with the perpetrator. And when we decide to absorb the pain of sin against us, that's when we're most like the Savior. Second thing, second thing he did. He canceled the debt. Verse 27 says he canceled the debt. Now, um, did, you know what the debt, the 10,000 bags of gold? He forgave him, okay, and he canceled the debt. Didn't mean that, you know what, he went back into the, the treasury uh, that afternoon. He's like, what? 
The 10,000 bags of gold, they're here. How did that happen? You know, that's nice. That gold was gone forever. It was gone. For, it wasn't coming back. There was no way he was paying that back. There was no way they were, they were making it back, you know, when he went to the World Bank. The money was gone forever. You borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, go over a big rock and destroys the mower. The blade is shot and everything. And you, you go back, and he says, great. And you go back, you, you go, look, I, I'm going to go down and see his right now. You know, they got a sale. I just love, you know, I'm going to get the same mom, blah, make, ding, blah. And, and your neighbor goes, listen, the thing was on the way out. You know, it's 20, that mower is 25 years old. It doesn't owe me anything. Just forget it. Now, great. Okay. You sure? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure. Okay. Now, if he does that, he's still down a mower. Yes? He's still down a mower. No, the, the, the mower is going to have to be replaced when the grass starts growing again. Somebody's going to have to pay for that. But what he does is saying, you're not going to have to do it. I'm, I am going to incur that. Don't worry about it. I will absorb the cost. There is a loss. The only question is, who's going to make up that loss? Who will do it? Who's going to pay the debt? When someone owes you, you got two options and only two. You make them pay, gossip, slander, uh, throw them under the bus, uh, let me warn you about this person because, you know what, I just, this, you know, I just want to let you know, be care- you know, and really, we, we're not doing it to help them. We're doing it to help us. We want vengeance. We want our pound of flesh, and that's the way we get our pound of flesh because we did We had 30 conversations like that in the office that day, 30 of them. It's like, we don't want you. I just want to warn you. I just-. Or, or it, the Christian version is, we just want to pray about this. So, you know what, and someone who has maybe hurt us or something, you know, this, this person really did something really bad, and i got to tell you, that's how we do it. Um, you do that. Or, what's the alternative? We pay. What do you mean? Uh, you refuse to slice them up. When, when conversation begins and people are going, what a jerk that guy, you refuse to become part of it. Remember the king's compassion? You know, when you want to tell them off, you refuse. Um, you may, at some point, tell them things they don't want to hear. Are there other times when people, you know what, they have, they're, they're serial injurers. They're serial sinners against people, and a lot of times they do the same sin again and again and again. Is there a time when you need to sit down to them and say, look, I, this can't go on. But you have got to forgive them first. Before you, the only ground that you can approach somebody like that is if you are on having gone through forgiving ground already. You have already absorbed that debt. Because unless you do that, you're going in for one reason and one reason only, to get your pound of flesh. You're going in for vengeance. So be careful. Are there times we need to do that? Absolutely. We don't do it enough in the church. It's choosing forgiveness not to be a debt collector but a debt absorber. Folks, when we decide to absorb the pain of sin, we are most like our Savior. Third thing, last thing, he let him go. He let him go. Some, sometimes people say, I can't forgive this person. I need to seek justice. But, you know, like I just said, we ain't seeking justice. I mean, really, we're not looking for justice. We're looking, you know, for, 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 for vengeance. And, and we're trying to, uh, you know, we're not really trying to wake them up to how many people are hurting. We're trying to make them hurt by telling them off. And, and you, you say you're seeking justice, but it's really vengeance. You say you're seeking justice for other people, but you're really seeking vengeance for ourselves. We're making that person pay the debt. And, folks, they're never, they're never going to listen unless you forgive before you pursue that. And you, you, There's no way to let them go. There's no way to release them. You know, to truly release them in your mind. Folks, when we we decide to absorb the pain of sin, we are most like the Savior in that moment. I had lunch this week. A couple of close pastor friends of mine. One of the guys, big sweet guy. I mean, great pastor. 
I mean, I, I, would, uh, I would sit under him. You know, I, I, would, I would be pleased to sit under his ministry. You know, if I retired today and I went to his church, great, great pastor. And uh, we're talking over lunch, and I, I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned anything about what I'm speaking about this morning. But all of a sudden, you know, this whole subject came up and, and about guys who, uh, I think we were talking about, you know, maybe guys who had hurt us in the past or something like that. I forget how exactly he got into it, but, but he started talking about this guy that had hurt him really, really deeply and hurt his family. I mean, really hurt them deeply. And, you know, he, for, for the longest time, just could not bring himself to forgive give this guy. All those questions at the beginning of the message, all of them he would, would have checked off, every single one. He said, now, now, and when it happened, he wasn't a Christian. Then he became a Christian, he, and as a Christian even, he couldn't, he couldn't forgive this guy. He's a pastor in our area, great guy. And, and, and he, for years and years, he went on. I said, well, how long did it go on? He goes, 15 years. 15 years it went on. I said, he said, every time I thought about the guy, I, I would get twisted. He said, I would think, of, you know, oh, man, I can't. I hope this guy, I hope he gets what's coming to him. I hope he gets. I said to him, what? what you know, you're, you're through that now. Yeah, I'm through it. What did you do? He said, basically, he said, I would just pray all the time. God, help me. Help me to forgive him. Help me to, help me to incur the debt. Help me to, the pain that he inflicted on my family. Help me to say, you know what? Give it up to Jesus. Give it up to Jesus. Give it up to Jesus. And after about... 15,000 times praying that prayer, giving up to Jesus. He said he woke up one day, and all of a sudden, he just didn't have any emotional overtones anymore. It was like, you know, towards the guy, it's like, yeah. And he knew he was, he was through. He knew he was done. He knew it was over. Folks, when we decide to absorb the pain of sin, in that moment, we are most like our Savior. Forgiveness is not easy and it is not necessarily quick, but a serious Christian will endeavor to forgive those who have sinned against him or her, knowing how much Christ has forgiven us. When we decide to absorb the pain of sin, it is in that moment, it is at that time, when we are most like our Savior. Thank you.